Today I'm talking about faith fractures. This is the fourth message in the series on faith. It's called Give Me Faith series. And fortunately, I was just thinking about this, about fractures. Fortunately, our family has been kind of fracture-less. We've never really dealt with broken bones in our family, uh, except once. I do remember one time, uh, Rebecca, my wife, she she stubbed her toe. Remember about two years ago when you stubbed your toe? And it wasn't a little stub your toe. It was it was this major deal. She it was like an intense pain and screaming, and, and it was late at night. I'm like, okay, you know, is this? I, I don't let's Let's go to a clinic. So we found a place and went in there, and they x-rayed and said, oh, yes, you fractured your pinky toe. And of course, uh, it, it was a twisted the other direction. Yeah, well, whatever. But, you know, but, but she couldn't walk, and she was overwhelmed with pain. And, and, and that little toe that we or she seldom worried about was all of a sudden a major issue in our life. And, and it was the source of anything else that could possibly go wrong. And it's just how a fracture can mess things up for us. Uh, that happens with our faith also. I think we're going along just fine. And all of a sudden, our faith is fractured, and then everything goes into a tailspin. I see that happen a lot in people's lives. I see it, that people's faith gets fractured. And, and today, I want to encourage you to not allow your faith to get fractured. I'm going to talk to you about that today. And, and, and there's a reason for that. The reason is because your life counts. You were created on purpose by God. There's intention there. You're an influencer. You're not just here on earth to make money or improve global climate conditions or write computer code or purchase stuff and eat food and die or whatever. I mean, that's what most people do. That's simply existing, and that's you know, part of what we do in life, but, but we have a greater purpose, and that greater purpose is to make Jesus known. And one of the ways we say that we do that around here is we make Jesus known by developing followers of Jesus. Jesus who influence and shape culture. That's really what we do as a church. That's why this church exists. And, and therefore, you can't do that without faith. We have to have it. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about the background of this, this series. We've been talking for a few weeks about this uh, we talked about faith in the fire, how we need to believe that God can. We need to expect that God will. And when you're going to trust God, even when God doesn't do what we want him to do. And that faith is just simply believing God, believing that God's going to be with you in the middle of your fiery trial. Uh, another thing that we learned during this time is that faith is governed by laws and principles. Faith is not some magic formula that we come up with or that we concoct on our own or that somebody tells us on TV. And, and, and even when we are faithless ourselves, God is faithful. Faith is active, and, but, but at the, it, what that means is that we have to do something. It's, it's, faith is not some elevated, lofty frame of mind where we kind of float around. No, it's, it's simply this. It's having confidence on what we're hoping for and being sure of what we don't see and taking action on it. Faith kind of opens our eyes and helps us to see that God's working on our behalf even when, when we didn't even realize he was. We've also learned that hearing the word initiates our faith. And then when we begin to speak the word, it activates our faith. And then when we begin to do the word, it demonstrates the faith. And that's the three things that pulls faith together. It's not some experience, but it's actually a person. It's Jesus. Faith is confidence that God is who he said he is and that God is going to do what he said he would do. 
That's what we've learned so far, and it's been a fun series. But I want you today to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter number 13. And you're going to see here in a second, there's this parable. Actually, a lot of Matthew 13 is about this parable. and There's a lot that's there. I'm just going to take a little part of it. But just to tell you about the parable, Jesus told this parable about seed. And now when Jesus was doing these parables, this was a sermon. So he would get up and do these little mini sermons. And, and this was one of his messages. And he talked about seed, about ineffective seed and effective seed. Uh, one of the illustrations of ineffective seed was he said that your seed would be like falling on a highway or a road and you throw the seed out there on the road and it's going to get eaten by birds. It's ineffective. And then Jesus said there's another kind of ineffective seed and that's seed that, that falls on rocky terrain and, and you, you, you throw it out there and if it finds soil, if it does, well, wonderful, it might spring up, but it's not going to do very long, not going to do much very long at all because it's not going to have a root system and, and when the Texas heat bears down on it, I know Jesus said Texas heat, I, mean, I know he said that, when the Texas heat bears down on it, it's going to burn it up and it's going to dry up and go away. And then he, the other thing Jesus talked about was another type of ineffective seed, he said there's another kind, and that's seed that falls into this aggressive weed environment where, where the soil is infested with these aggressive weeds. And the seed might take root and start to grow, but the weeds are going to choke it out and take the good plant away. And he said, no, but there is one way that a seed is effective. And he said, that's when the seed falls on good soil and it grows and it reproduces and it reproduces 60, you know, 30, 60, 100 times what it originally was. And that's effective seed. And so that was Jesus' sermon for the day. He, he told it more eloquently than I just did, but that was it. That was his sermon. He walked away and then his disciples pulled him aside and said, why are you doing that, Jesus? Just like, what? Because why are you telling stories that leave everybody hanging and we're going, okay, effective and ineffective seed. That's nice. What in the world does that have to do with anything? And, and Jesus then explained why, and this is all in Matthew 13. You can read the whole story there. But then he went on to explain what I would call the riddle of the ineffective and the effective seed, and it's what we call the parable of the sower. I want you to hear Jesus' response. Listen carefully. Jesus said this, and this is to the private audience of his disciples who confronted him saying, your teaching style is really kind of annoying us. We would like to know the meat behind it. And so, so he said this, listen to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches the seed away that was sown in their heart. That's the seed that's sown along the path or the highway. The seed falling on the rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, Texas sun beats down on them. They only last for a short time. When trouble or persecution, that's the response here, trouble or persecution, that's the beating heat, comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. And then, then Jesus said the seed, the third type of ineffective seed, the seed falling among thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries and the stress of life make, and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But, which is the fourth seed, he says the seed falling on Good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. And that word understands it means more than just a cognitive understanding, but you mean you're actually going to you put feet to it. You start doing something with it. He says, this is the one that produces a crop, yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. So 
today, what that means is when I preach or when you read the scriptures, that is like seed. But the seed is effective or ineffective based upon not the seed itself, not the person who's delivering it, but actually your own heart. The effectiveness of the message is up to you. And that's what I'm talking about today. So I, I, I'm going to ask you to, do, to really do some heavy self-exam as I'm moving into this fourth week here. It's time for us to really examine ourselves. Is your heart good soil? Now, now, we've learned this, that we get faith a certain way. We get faith when we hear the word, when we understand the word, and we act upon the word. I just mentioned that. That's something we learned already. And, and, and that's how we get it. But if that seed, the word, isn't going into good soil, then the faith isn't happening. So I'm going to challenge you on that today. See, here's the interesting thing. In that story, Jesus told all of the seed had potency, but most of it was deemed ineffective based upon the condition of the person receiving uh, the seed, upon the word. It's the person receiving God's word, hearing and not understanding it. That's where God's word doesn't have its intended effect, or hearing it and getting excited but succumbing to trouble or persecution. That's where God's word doesn't have its intended effect, or when we hear it but we're so stressed out and overwhelmed with the craziness of life or the, the desperate pursuit of making money, God's word then doesn't have its intended effect. But when we hear it, we digest it, we act on it, then God's word has its intended effect, which is exponential. It's huge. It's more vast than you can imagine. So today I'm talking about things that cause people's faith to be brutally fractured. Your faith and the faith of people that you love. Um, I want to have healthy faith, but it takes work on my end. Therefore, it's a daily choice for me to have healthy faith. And if I'm not careful, my faith can become fractured. And if you want to have healthy faith, there are some things that you need to do. And the, really, the primary response is this, is focus your eyes on Jesus and focus it on Jesus alone. That's, that's really where it begins. That's the beginning. That's where we have to live. And see, there are, and so today I'm going to share with you three different faith fractures. And, and as I share these with you, the, uh, I'm going to give you two versions. I decided I'm going to give you the collegiate version, the, the educated college version, and so you can feel like, so, so you'll know I definitely went to college. I, I definitely went to school. And then I'm going to give you the simplified version. That's kind of like the ADD version, which actually proves to you that I'm still ADD, and I prefer the one-word answer. So, so faith fracture number one, which really gets into the guts of it, is this. This is the college version. This is the educated version. This is the version that, you know, I would say in a tone of voice like this. Faith fracture number one is you observe an irreconcilable discrepancy between what Christians claim to believe and the way that they live. Now, faith fracture number one simplified ADD version is this, hypocrisy. That's it. That's the one I choose to remember. A lot of people walk away from their professed believing in Jesus due to hypocrisy. For some, it's like a slow leak, and for other people, it's just this blowout. And, and this is one of the greatest reasons I see in today's culture of why people walk away from faith in Jesus. People claim to believe in Jesus and talk about Jesus, but they live differently from that. And I just, to be honest with you, I hate that. And I see it way, way, way too often. But the reality is 
that this happens to us because we are actually getting our eyes off of Jesus and we're putting our eyes on people and it ends up costing us dearly because we're looking at the people and we're not looking at Jesus. Now here's a fact. If you get your eyes on people, you will certainly be disappointed. Now I'll just make an even more bold statement. I, Tim Woody, pastor of your church, if you're a partner with us, I'm your pastor, I will disappoint you. I will. A couple of weeks ago, I, I was I disappointed someone, and and it you know kind of blew up on my face, and I didn't mean for it to, uh, but I disappointed someone because I didn't show up for an appointment that I had with them because I forgot to put the appointment on my calendar, and 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 it happened. The person then fired off a scathing email to me and and told me they're done with the church, they're done with God, every church fails them, and I'm just you know whatever, 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 and that's so all. Like okay, well, I was wrong. I said. I, I wrote the response. I said, I was wrong. I, I, I did the wrong. I was supposed to do one thing. I said I was going to do one thing, but I did another. And I'm telling you, that was hypocrisy on my end. I said I was going to do one thing, but I did another. You say, you're being too hard on yourself, Pastor. Well, no, but, but seriously, I mean, that's what happens in life. So I decided the best thing to do is just confess it boldly. And I said, I failed. I was wrong. I'm sorry. I disappointed you. Forgive me. And... But the truth is, if your eyes are on me expecting perfection, you will be sorely disappointed. Because the truth is, and I know my wife can declare this one with, with, with gusto, is that I'm just like you. <laughs> and, and that fact right there that I'm just like you should sober a lot of you right there. I am not the immaculate conception. All right, that is Jesus. And Jesus isn't going to let you down. But when people let you down, here's what we have to do. Focus our eyes on Jesus and on Jesus alone. That person sitting next to you, they're going to disappoint you. And you might be new and here and go, oh, I love all the people around this church. They're really nice people. But you might get out there in the street and they might cut you off in traffic. And, and you might see some of them having a bad attitude at Target because their little Target card got number got taken again or whatever. And they just, you might see that and go, oh, no. It's a true story. I was, I was uh, serving as a children's pastor in a large church several years ago. I was about 25 years old, and I was in the church lobby, and and uh, and there was this guy who came walking up to me, and, and he was actually a guy that had come to me about a month earlier and said, man, I don't have enough money for gas. I don't have anything. I, I need gas to drive home from church, and so I just gave him all the money in my pocket. That's when we used to carry cash. Remember that stuff? Dollar bills. So I gave him some cash. I said, great, great. God bless you. He goes, I'll pay you back later. I said, yeah, well, okay, right. Well, he was coming at me again. I thought, oh, there's the guy who's going to pay me back. I wonder if he's going to. That's what I was really thinking. But he got up to he got in my face and said, you offended me. I said, wow. I mean, I didn't even have a chance to respond. He said these words. He said, I saw you at the four-way stop over at Joe Wilson Road and Pleasant Run Road, and I waved at you, and I was sitting right there. You saw me, and you ignored me, and I just want to know, what do you have against me? And I'm just going, oh, what, what? And then he just, I didn't have a chance to respond, and he fired back at me. He said, that's why I hate all of you church people, because you're all so phony. And the guy, I promise you, he turned around and walked out, and I never saw him in church again. What happened is I offended him, I guess. And the truth is, if you really want to be offended, I mean, I was just thinking, dude, you should hang around me a little bit more because sometimes I get grouchy and sometimes I don't even display Jesus with the spirit of excellence that I'd want to. And sometimes I fail. Those, those things happen. I may miss waving at you. And that doesn't mean that I'm evil or devil. But if your eyes are on me and not on Jesus, it could cause you to shipwreck your faith. About 10 years ago, I was 
preaching uh, at my, the church that I was pastoring, and we had multiple back-to-back services on Sundays, and, and, uh, and, and this, we were at a church fellowship event the next Sunday, and this angry lady came up to me, and she said, I want to know why you walked off the stage and through the back door after, after preaching last Sunday. I'd like to know the truth about you, because all of you preachers are alike, and you really don't care about us. And I said, started thinking, I said, yeah, actually, I remember that. I said, you want to know the truth? I said, I had to go to the bathroom really bad, and I couldn't hold it. And I'm not sorry I made the choice to walk off the platform. I'm kind of glad I did because nature called. And I said, I'm flesh. And I said, here, come here, pinch it. Pinch my arm, and you'll, you'll see. I'm flesh. And she did. She pinched me. And I thought, okay, she realized I am not the immaculate conception. So be careful of what you assume because if you're looking at people They will let you down, and you will get disappointed. But we have a message about a perfect Savior. And our message is being delivered by you and me, which are imperfect people. And if we get our eyes off the Savior and get them on imperfect people talking about the Savior, you're going to be disappointed. And likely, your faith will become fractured. There are terrible things that have been done in the name of Christ. Bad stuff. Things that never should have happened. The Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, witch hunts, some who have even used the scriptures to advocate slave trade. I just say there is no excuse for that in the name of Jesus. But the Bible is clear on one thing. The Bible is clear that that there is only one who is without blemish, and that is Jesus. In fact, one of the reasons I love the Bible is because the Bible humanizes the heroes. It's interesting how the Bible does that. And, and David, he was a man who was after God's own heart. And we, we, read, a, we read a passage of scripture. We prayed through it just a few minutes ago. It was where he, he, he committed this horrible sin against God. And he tried to cover up his sin by murdering someone. And, and, and that's David, the man after God's own heart. And the nation of Israel, the nation God loved, they, the one thing they did consistently was constantly screw up. Now, I'm not justifying what they did. I'm not justifying any of that. But the Bible does make exception for imperfect people because that's all of us. So how in the world do we deal with hypocrisy then? Well, hypocrisy is going to happen. So here's what we have to do. Focus your eyes on Jesus and on Jesus alone. People will fail you. Jesus will not. Hebrews 12 says this. says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on who? Jesus. He's the pioneer. He's the perfecter of our faith. Consider Jesus who endured such opposition from sinners. Why? So that you will not grow weary and so that you won't lose heart. So what do you do when people that you're supposed to respect are doing things that bring shame to the name of Christ? Do you turn away from Christ and turn away from the body of Christ? No. (laughs) You need to run, instead of from Christ, running from Jesus to Jesus. Don't fix your gaze on people. So how do you make it? Bottom line this, focus your eyes on Jesus and on Jesus alone. Get that message here because he will not let you down. In this parable that I showed with you in Matthew chapter 13, only one of the four actually got the message. So you're going to encounter hypocrites. It's going to happen. They're in the church. Some are preachers. Some are leaders. And there are people who represent the name of Christ that embarrass me. 
Uh, some get on TV and they say ridiculous things, and some people come across as looking like very intolerant, hateful people. And I see them again. I, it's happened to me so many times in downtown Fort Worth as a person preaching, so to speak, on the street corner, telling me I'm going to hell. And I'm just thinking, dude, you don't even have a clue what you are talking about. You don't have a spirit of discernment. You have a spirit of wrong. <laughs> it's just, just what is the deal? I want to go up and smack him in the face in the name of Jesus, but I know I can't. Yeah, the security will come grab me in no time at all. One of you guys probably who work out there will come and grab me and then arrest your pastor. It's like, oh, no, don't, don't, don't do that. But, but you see, there are some who represent the name of Christ also who get themselves involved in scandal and, and they embarrass me. And the truth is, even at times it has shaken my faith because I'm in the same profession as some of those professional ministers. But if I choose to have faith or not have faith based upon the foolish actions of another person who represents Jesus, then I am the fool. I am the one who has allowed my own faith to become fractured because of the deeds of another hypocrite. And that, my friend, is the ultimate foolish act that we do ourselves. My dad used to say this. I, oh, I have these dad quotes that I remember forever. My dad was a pastor, and my dad used to say this. I love it. It's one of my favorite sayings. He would preach this. He said, I'd rather go to church with some hypocrites than to go to hell with all the hypocrites. <laughs> I love it. So simple. Don't let someone else fracture your faith. Focus your eyes on Jesus and on him alone. Faith fracture number two. Here it is. Here is the college-educated version. Your faith will be under siege when you perceive logical or philosophical, philosophical flaws in the teaching of our faith. Say it again, your faith will be under siege when you perceive logical or philosophical flaws in the teaching of our faith. Let's address this. This is a big issue. Uh, it's, the ADD version is this one word. It's confusion. Confusion. It can rattle your faith. I love to read the Bible. I'm crazy about it. I love it, but I'm also telling you I'm crazy about the book that also has some very crazy stuff in it. Let's just be honest about it. There's some wild things that are in the Bible. There are things that we sometimes think that God always does or God always doesn't do certain things, and, and it just gets a little, it's like, well, I don't really get it because it says here and it says here, so what's, where do I land? And some people say, just forget it all. I'm not going to have anything to do with this. So I think it's good for us to talk about that. It, the, the truth is, though, this is one thing that we know about God that is consistent. And God does one thing, and he does it well, and he is God, and he has been God, he is God, and he always will be God. That's for sure. You see, God even told people to do some bizarre things in the Bible. And one time God told a man to kill his son, and he didn't allow him to follow through with it, but he still told him to. Now, what happens in our society if, if God tells or if someone says, well, God told me to kill my children? Well, they go to jail or they're electrocuted. Or, and I'm just saying they should be punished. Absolutely. And I, I look through the Bible and, and I sometimes think I'm not going to be teaching on that topic anytime soon. I used to say this when it came to prophecy, uh, like the book of Revelation and prophecy and stuff. Uh, years ago, I would say, man, you know, that's, that's, that's so challenging to teach. I, I, I know there are the certain answers 
encouragement you can give to people, but I'm not going to teach on that until I get gray hair. And then I promise you, I, as, when I started saying that, the next year my hair turned gray really fast. It was freaking, it really was. And all of a sudden I looked at the mirror, I thought, I have to teach on prophecy. So I did, I prepared myself to teach on that. But, you know, think about this, the book of Leviticus I mean, I'm just telling you guys, I'm not going to be teaching on that anytime soon. There's no way. I mean, I'll leave that teaching to my friend Andrew Bloom, who's the rabbi over at the synagogue. He'll do really good with that. Yeah, I mean, in the book of Leviticus, do you realize, hey, you, you read the Bible, so you've seen this. There are four chapters in a row that talk about skin diseases. I mean, that's crazy stuff. Now, I know some of your medical professionals are going, yes, that's what I love. I want to read about the skin diseases in the Bible. But I'm just telling you, it's pretty strange to me. Billy Graham, he was one of the mo- the greatest examples of a man who preached the gospel well. I think he's like 95 years oldish now, still living. But he is considered to be the most respected preacher of the gospel in modern history. In fact, this man lived with integrity all of his life. He's, he has sat with more kings, more prime ministers and presidents and political leaders than any other minister in the history of the world. And he lived it, and he had access. And his messages have been broadcast all over the world, especially during that second half of the 20th century. But a long time ago, way back at the beginning, near, near the beginning of his ministry, he was in this retreat setting out in California. And this was before he was popular and really on the world stage, but he was becoming a renowned person over on the West Coast. He was having this discussion with several people around the table that did not believe in the Bible. And so they started challenging him, and they would pick things out of the Bible, and they started to try to rock his theological foundation. And, and, and then Billy Graham came to this conclusion. He writes this in his memoirs, and here are his words, and I, I put them up on the screen for you. He said, finally, I went for a walk in the moonlit forest. I knelt down with my Bible on a tree stump in front of me and began praying. I don't recall my exact words, but my prayer went something like this. Oh, Lord, there are many things in this book I don't understand. There are many problems in it for which I have no solution. But Father, by faith, I am going to accept this as thy word. From this moment on, I'm going to trust the Bible as the Word of God. He said, when I got up from my knees, I sensed God's presence in a way I hadn't felt for months. Not all of my questions were answered, but I knew a major spiritual battle had been fought and won. And I never doubted the Bible's divine inspiration again. And immediately my preaching took on a new confidence. And he says this, he says, don't let anyone shake your confidence in the Bible as God's word. If you have questions about it, don't use them as an excuse to turn your back on God. Instead, face your doubts, seek answers. You aren't the first person to ask them. In addition, read the Bible for yourself with an open heart and mind and ask God to show you if it truly is his word and he will. Your life will never be the same once you trust the Bible as God's word. God will begin to use it to change your life, Dr. Billy Graham. It's interesting because I, there's even kind of a modern example of this. I, I told you last week I went to see that, that pseudo-cheesy movie, um, Left Behind, the, the new version of it. And 
I talked with you about it last week, and and it was a and the, but there's this guy in the movie. It's my understanding that's one of my sons read about it. And he said, "Oh, this is cool." One of the guys in the movie he portrays a a uh, a Middle Eastern or a Muslim who was there in the airplane at this this event, and 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 it's the guy was cast and put into this role. And during the time when he was in there, he started studying the Bible for the first time, and he actually became a believer after he he did he had total doubts about it. He wasn't into this at all, but as a result of that movie and as a result of actually getting into the Bible and reading it for himself, he changed his faith and he began to serve Jesus Christ. I'm just telling you guys, don't turn your brain off. Engage it. But here's the key. You need to open the Bible. You need to find your tree stump and you need to make a choice by faith to accept it as God's word. And I've, even though I've studied this book and I, I have my theological degree and I've preached it all my life, there are still some things that are in there that I don't understand. And I'll tell you this, I am okay with that. And when I don't understand something, I will even tell you I don't understand that. In fact, I did last week as well. There are some things I don't understand, but I'm okay with that. So when you're confused about the Bible, what do you do? Focus your eyes on Jesus and on Jesus alone. My faith is in Jesus. So the truth is, is there an empty tomb or is there not? And I believe there is. Uh, so I'm not going to waste my trying time trying to dissect why it says this in Deuteronomy and why it says that in Leviticus because it might feel like it's contradictory. Hey, my faith is in Jesus and that, my friend, is logical. Faith fracture number three. This is the third and final one. Here it is. This is the third thing that can throw your faith off. The educated version is this. Here we go. Your faith will be threatened, challenged, and perhaps mortally wounded when you encounter circumstances that contradict your characterization of God. Let's look at it again. Your faith will be threatened, challenged, and perhaps mortally wounded when you encounter circumstances that contradict your own characterization of God. Faith fracture number three simplified for the rest of us is this. It's the trials of life. See, our faith is not in our circumstances, but our faith is in a person. It's Jesus. And just like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they said, even if God doesn't deliver us from our circumstances, we're going to trust God in the middle of our circumstances. And that's when that fourth person showed up in the fires I shared a few weeks ago. That's when actually Jesus showed up on the scene. See, sometimes God, though, will not meet your expectations that you have of him. So what do you do when God doesn't fulfill your expectations? Well, it's this. You should have it down by now. You focus your eyes on Jesus and on Jesus alone. You might say, well, how can a loving God allow this to happen to me? It's not fair. What do you do? You got to focus your eyes on Jesus and on Jesus alone. And remember this, that the one who died for you has the best intentions toward you all the time. So look to Jesus. Don't look to the company that you work for. Don't look to your bank account. I mean, don't look to your spouse. Don't look to your physical condition or your parents or the government. But look to Jesus and get your eyes fixed on him. Because life can really stink sometimes. So what do we do? Do we just step back and allow our faith to become fractured? Well, my answer is no. Today I'm asking Giles Polly 
It's one of our leaders here in our church. He's coming to the platform now. And I'm going to ask you to listen to his story because Giles has a very powerful story of how God has worked in his life. Giles? Thanks, Pastor. All right, so today we get to learn a little bit about my history. Uh, so we get to learn about 14-year-old Giles. Is this not amazing? The, you know, before this was the glasses and croaky Giles, when and before being a nerd and a geek was cool. I was about a decade and a half before my time, clearly. Uh, but so how we're going to do this is we're going to do some subtitles to my story, basically using song lyrics. Uh, so we're going to start with this. Maybe you're the son who chose a broken road. Maybe you're the girl thinking you'll end up alone, praying, God, can you hear me? Oh, God, are you listening to me? Uh, and you can probably remove my picture. <laughs> uh, what you don't know about that picture, though, even though there's all smiles in that picture, is that that picture was taken about five months after my father's death. But I was able to smile, right? You know, the, uh, the art of wearing a mask was something I learned during the five-year period of my father's slow uh, death to cancer. Um, but what you also need to know about this time is that I saw my father completely change. I saw him go from a, a man who saw his role as a father, as a provider, to someone who took more of an interest in his kids, and who took more of an interest in his, his wife and, and in his God. Uh, during this time, he, uh, he began getting up at five in the morning to read the Bible and pray before work. He would leave Sunday early to go be with a group of men at church and find encouragement and discipleship. And yet, all these things, all the prayers of my family, my church, my friends, countless others, at the age of 14, seemed so completely useless and pointless. It infuriated me, and I couldn't understand how a godly man who I watched grow closer to, uh, closer to God could just be taken away. From the outside, though, nothing changed. I could smile. How I acted didn't change. But inside, there was a new, a fresh wound. And, and over years, it was going to start to fester because it was never dealt with. And this is going to take us to our, our next subtitle. This world is crazy. My dreams are fading. No one can save me. I want my life. Really emo, right? Now, uh, for the record, I do not in any way advocate Smile Empty Soul. <laughs> but this is what angry 18-year-old Giles did listen to. Uh, you know, what you have to understand about this time, and, and make no doubt, this is a time of complete and utter faithlessness on my end. There were two Gileses that existed. We inhabited the same body, for sure. You had the Giles that never changed. He could smile. He eventually went to high school. He took the beatings of high school. I missed about a year and a half uh, for two back surgeries, and then later on some more for a laundry list of, of trials. But I smiled the entire way. You can never see that, that I changed. I was the non-church-going Christian who, to your face, would never say anything to me. And I was as straight-laced as they came. 
But then there was a different side to that, Giles. On the other side of that coin, and during that time, I would probably argue the real and the raw Giles, there was a very angry version. Uh, this, is, <laughs> this is the one who, because being out of high school, didn't really have the social life. My friends at that time were doctors and physical therapists and my mom. And so I, I found an online world. Um, but on that online world, I could be, at that time, the real Giles. I could play video games and happily cuss you out and happily demean you for, for no point other than you happen to be playing me that day. Um, but, you know, during this part of my life, you know, when I had, I had no true love for God, I would still confess it because I knew it was what I was supposed to do. But inside, I, w- I was really cursing him. Uh, and this is how I, I lived for many years. Uh, eventually, this anger kind of, I don't say it worked its way out. It changed. Uh, it gave way to something else. Uh, it gave way to self-doubt. gave way to low self-esteem. Uh, the wound of an absent father and a shattered faith left me seeking acceptance in just about anything. Um, it left me asking the question if I had what it took to truly be a man in this world. And the only thing worse than that was that I had silence as my response. Uh, moving into the next part of my life, uh, we get some good old cold play. And the tears come streaming down your face when you lose something you can't replace. When you love someone, but it goes to waste, could it be worse? So this is a portion of my life that not many people in this room know. Uh, before my lovely bride, Deb, I'm actually divorced. I have been married before. And I don't advocate or believe in, in divorce. It's incredibly painful. God says he hates it because it is so painful and because it does destroy your life and the lives of those around you. That's where I found myself. You see, the funny thing about the trials of life is that they could be just as devastating as the ones before. The trials of life that come our way offer us the same thing each time, opportunity. The opportunity to change, to rise above, to either conquer or be conquered. The details of what happened in that marriage is a story completely unto itself. What you need to know is this, there was enough blame to go around. We both brought baggage and wounds that we had never dealt with into that marriage. But it was during the separation and during the roller coaster ride of, hey, let's work this out. Hey, let's not work this out. That I, I finally came to terms with where I was in life. I finally saw my wound for what it was, a complete and utter lack of faith in Christ. In my mind and over the years, I imagined that God had cussed me out just as many times as I had cussed him out. Yet sometimes in these trials, God, God uses them to get our attention. Not that he causes them, but that he uses them. The Hound of Heaven by Francis Thompson opens this way. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of the tears, I hid from him. But the truth of that poem later exposes is this, that Christ reaches out his hand to the writer, that he takes him and he helps him and he lifts him up, not to destroy him. And this is what we must learn, know, and believe above all else, that God is good. You know, as I began to get right with Christ during the separation, I found myself back at the church that my ex and I had actually attended for years together. So I realized I had a lot of people there that knew me and that probably knew my story. 
And I remember the first Sunday, I made it in and out, sat in a completely different spot than where I normally do. No one said anything to me. It was a clean escape. It was perfect. But then I felt called to go back that next Monday for the prayer meeting. And I remember walking in, and I remember the lady walking in at the same time going, oh, hey, Giles. And it was just a sinking feeling of, and they found me. I have been caught. Uh, but it was the most beautiful thing. You know, during that, that service, I found myself in between rows, much like this, down on my knees, not even on my knees, face down, sobbing. The whole works, the, the tears and the snot, the, the thing that only God can call a beautiful mess because in reality, it's really not beautiful at all. But though my, my story obviously continues from there, it's important to note that when I turned back to Christ, I stood on faith for my marriage. And I waited a long time. Even after the divorce was final, I decided I was gonna wait out the rest of the year, about eight months, on faith, standing for it. And I still lost. But I remembered something about the entire thing, that God is still good. And through the trial of, of my life, instead of only creating new wounds, I found healing and found the faith that I thought had perished at the beginning of this story. Your faith journey is not gonna look like mine. It will not look like anyone else's in this room. It has been said in this church and outside of this church, but my version of the truth is this. You live in a broken and fallen world. Becoming a Christian doesn't change the rest of the world, just your perspective of it. To survive this world, you need to know that you're not alone. You can't do it alone. For much of my journey, I fought, I struggled, I failed alone. Only when I submitted myself to Christ and the church, godly wisdom, did I finally actually begin to heal and do more than just survive this world. I conquered the trials and the wounds that were present in my life and that had plagued me for so long. And that's what, that's what you can do with faith and with healing is when you find and put your vision on God, you actually can find wholeness. Thank you, Charles. Well, when nothing looks good, what do you do? You focus your eyes on Jesus and on Jesus alone. What do you do? You need to get some around some people who are going to lift you up and hold you up. The truth is you may not make it. Some of you, you may be around circles of friends that are continually pulling you down and, and, and even subtly or even directly chopping away at your faith. And if you think that's not impacting your walk with Jesus, it is. I just encourage you to look at the people that you're with. It's one of the reasons why we have plunge party this afternoon. You're going to eat lunch anyway. Come and enjoy lunch and get to know some other people who are on this faith, same faith journey that you're on. Some imperfect people but who all love Jesus and are learning to love him more and more all the time. Today I'm going to pray. I want to pray for you. Next week I'm going to be wrapping up this faith series, but today I'm praying that you will have a solid faith your faith is not going to be fractured, that you won't let it be fractured. Come on, let's pray. Will you pray with me before we close with the song? 
God, I pray that you will help us to have solid faith, strong faith, where we hear the word, understand the word, and then act on it. Help us to refuse, God, to, to, to allow the hypocrisy of other people to fracture our faith. Help us to refuse to allow confusion to fracture our faith. Help us, God, to in no way allow the trials of life to fracture our faith. Instead, God, we choose to get our eyes on you, Jesus, and on you alone. Let it be in our hearts. Let it be that way in our lives. Let it be that way when we walk out of this place. In Jesus' name. Will you guys please stand with me? I didn't say amen for one reason. It's because I'm wanting us to sing this song. Because this song is the last part of our prayer. Give me faith. And after we sing this song, we can say amen. Let's sing it together.